He said, did you lose hope? And, and I said, you and I are people that cannot afford to lose hope. And so we left it at that. And when we left the meeting, he grabbed my arm and said, it's a very inspiring discussion. And we said, let's not lose hope going forward. You just heard Prince Jaime de Bourbon de Palme, who is leading as climate envoy the negotiations for the Netherlands at COP27. In this episode, Prince Jaime talks about the current state of climate negotiations and the importance of listening, bridging divides and collaboration. He reflects on the impact of the war in Ukraine and the human dimension of the climate crisis. We're really glad to have Prince Jaime as a guest to explore the art of bridging divides. Welcome to the Inner Green Deal, the podcast exploring the human dimension of sustainable leadership. In each episode, we give time and space to remarkable guests to tell their story and bring the inner dimension of sustainability to life. I'm Tom, and I'll be your guide. This podcast was recorded by Inner Green Deal co-founder Jeroen Jens in the run-up to COP27. No matter what are the outcomes of the conference, the insights on the human dimension in climate negotiations are universal. Before we hear more about Prince Heim's journey, let's start by exploring what a climate envoy actually is. A climate envoy is a diplomat that, that is responsible for, in a way, finding solutions to climate action, not just in the formal negotiations, but also in the coalition of the willing. It's the private sector, it's civil society, climate youth included, it's the science community and governments, of course, to find uh, solutions and find coalitions to, to move it along. When we think of nature, our first memories often shape how we relate to our natural world. Growing up in different countries with different natural habitats, Prinz Heimer becomes aware of the value of nature already at a young age. We all have connections with, with nature, but when I was small, I lived in France first, and I remember Paris as a city of stones. Then I went to Spain as a young boy, and I recollected to being very dry in Madrid, specifically in summers. And then I came back to the Netherlands, half Spanish, half Dutch, And I came back to the Netherlands and I remember the grass. And there was a place where you could stumble around and not hurt yourself as a young boy playing around. But that sense of safety in nature is, is a strong connection. And if we look at climate, our best partner out there to deal with climate change is nature itself. It absorbs about half human caused uh, emissions. And we're eroding that safety net. That really concerns me. On the other hand, if we just leave nature be, it regenerates itself and gives all the services that we've been blessed to get all these uh, generations prior to us. So nature as a partner, as an equal partner, is something that I've tried to introduce into my work. My background was conflict management. So I always worked in conflict zones, in both in Asia and in Africa. That brought me slowly to, to climate as well, because I realized in these areas that the most conflict areas are climate sensitive, 
they're very dry areas or they're prone to floods or to earthquakes or to other natural disasters. And you see that climate can be a threat multiplier. So that was the first time I was alerted to climate. And slowly my work saw climate as, as someone else's problem or some of my problem as well, but other people were working on it. Parked it somewhere away and thought there were other climate envoys out there. I noticed that also I needed to um, dedicate my work to it as well. And, uh, and that's how slowly in my work um, I in integrated climate. Let's jump into the year of 2021. It is summer and the world is experiencing a series of natural disasters. From wildfires, droughts to floods. Between July 12th and July 15th, a storm moves across Europe with rainfall up to 200 millimeters within a period of 24 hours. For some regions, this means rainfall of a magnitude they have not seen in the last 1,000 years. Belgium and Germany suffer from floods that cause hundreds to die, with damage exceeding tens of billions of euro. Just at this time, Prince Heimer starts his new role as the climate envoy of the Netherlands. What is the experience of starting into that office under these circumstances? As climate envoy, the first thing that happened when I was actually moving from Geneva from a previous job with the UN back to the Netherlands, I drove past uh, the southern Netherlands and there were military everywhere and, and also in Germany crossing the border. A lot of military and secured personnel thought it was a national exercise going on. But I quickly looked on, online and they said there was heavy weather expected. That night there was such extreme weather that over 200 people died in Belgium and, and in uh, Germany. Luckily, the infrastructure held in the Netherlands, but just, just. So there was empirical evidence of extreme weather events. We saw then forest fires that summer throughout the world and extreme droughts. And then the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Action, the kind of synthesis of climate science, came with their reports, a whole series of reports last year, also giving uh, scientific evidence that things are looking very bleak the way we're, we're proceeding. The sense of urgency came really knocking on my door and I have to read every report. It means that um, I can't look away and it does wake me up sometimes deep in night. So I've worked in conflict zones before, but you go into a conflict zone and you leave it again because it's not our conflict. But if you read about climate, you dive into climate and you can't leave it because it's the same planet and all the countries will be affected, including the Netherlands, which within Europe is the most climate vulnerable country. And we know how to deal with waterworks, dikes, and, and everything else that we've put into place. But if geographically seen, one third of the country is under the sea level, we're hypersensitive. All these issues kind of stumble through your head, and specifically if you have young children at home, it makes you even the more worried uh, for the future. So the concern bit really hit me hard. But my predecessor warned me and said that as a climate envoy, you'll go first or anybody working on climate through the valley of despair <laughs> before you see the lights again. And, uh, and I, I went through that whole uh, process of having to come to terms with, with the reality of climate. Maybe it's the same for most of us. When we read the reports, when we fully realize the reality of climate change, we go through the valley of despair before we see light again. But how does that work? What helps us to continue? And how do we remain positive amidst loss of ecosystems, floods, droughts, and wildfires? Before pointing out where he sees the light coming through, 
Prince Helmut first takes us back to the climate summit of COP26 and a G20 meeting he attended to give us an overview on the state of global climate diplomacy. COP26 was the climate summit in Glasgow. For a climate summit, I would give it an eight because we've negotiated very efficiently uh, the Paris Agreement, the implementation of the Paris Agreement, we call it the Paris Rulebook. EU was very clearly present with the Green Deal, a very credible partner in those negotiations. If you look at what we've done there, it was quite remarkable. And next to the formal negotiations, we also had all the world of alliances, all the different initiatives that sprang out of Glasgow. Some of those might actually succeed and be quite successful. So that gave quite a sense of hope. The U.S. was on board. China was semi-cooperative. We saw many countries increasing their ambitions towards the climate summit. All that together saw momentum. But then that's the climate top on itself. But if you look at the outcome, team humanity was still falling short. We're still falling heavily short. The summit did its job of increasing momentum, but it wasn't enough yet. So a lot of work needed to be done. We left there with a lot of homework. And then as the Ukraine crisis happened, you see that the immediate crisis overshadow the long-term like climate, although it's not that long-term because now we see all the effects in Pakistan and other places around the world, renewed forest fires making clear that the climate crisis is very current as well. But the Ukraine crisis had a lot of impact on the food price because of the export of grain and also increased the energy price, which again also increases the food price because the fertilizer prices are going up. They need a lot of energy to, to make fertilizers. So it's a very negative spiral that puts even more pressure on the resources that were under pressure because of climate. It's a negative spiral that we need to find a way out of. And it puts pressure on geopolitics. The willingness for the big blocks to work together is eroding. And you see it eroding amongst two camps. And then the Taiwan crisis, it's a small crisis relative to Ukraine, but still a very significant one. China said they wouldn't work or cooperate with the US on climate. It doesn't mean they won't either work on it, but they won't work together on it. And we saw in Glasgow how important it was for them to shake hands in the middle of Glasgow so the world knew that if these two agree, then we can all move along. That message has been disrupted this year, and hopefully it will mend. But it's a big question mark if it will mend in time for the next climate top in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh, if there will be a cooperative attitude or not. I just came back from the G20, in the G20, I saw China playing a very active, disruptive role, putting into question everything that's been decided by the world community in Glasgow and in Paris Agreement, trying to erode some of that language. And I don't know if that is general policy, and we've seen it throughout multilateral institutions, uh, China taking that stance, or it's payback for Taiwan or other geopolitical tensions, or a combination of both. But it was a grim, grim negotiation in, uh, in Bali. We had a a meeting of working group on climate and it's so important for the G20 to agree because the G20 is good for 80% of the global emissions. These 20 countries would agree on climate, then we wouldn't need next climate tops because then the most polluting countries would come together to find a solution. But then you see the geopolitics plays a very disruptive goal in this. And sometimes very national politics are playing. It's not just geopolitics. Uh, it's very safe for countries like China to be part of a developing group and therefore polarize developing and developed countries' uh, narrative. It's safe for countries that have an income on fossil fuels 
uh, to delay any action to delay also the possibility of stranded assets and uh, to increase their national supply while they're diversifying maybe sometimes into green economies as well but but it's safe to stick to what you already have all that uh, plays around if you give some of those countries um, the excuse to opt out you see that they take it the upside is that we see in quite a few countries that they are quite aware that they need secure supply of energy and these used to be fossil focused and, and some still are but many are realizing that if you have renewables, you are independent of uh, global supply chains of coal, of gas and of oil to be able to run your economy. That realization has sunk in quite a few countries, not all of them. So a part of my job is now to also use that narrative of security supply for a green economy. That's actually hitting home in, in quite a few countries. When we shift our focus from what there is to lose and instead look at the opportunities ahead, it may become easier to embrace the necessary changes and increase our momentum. As we, our societies and our economies are strongly interconnected, every nation has an important part to play. What is it that the Netherlands can contribute and bring to the table? Each country has their own sense of expertise and also topics that they focus on because we can't do everything ourselves. In the Netherlands, uh, water management at the dikes are just working against nature and water, but also with nature. So we've created areas that can flood naturally so that the rivers expand in a sense in certain times of year and other times of year we can use that land again as agricultural land. All that knowledge and expertise we share with other deltas around the world, whether it's Egypt, Bangladesh, the, the Mekong Delta, there are many other deltas which we work with to share that knowledge. So whenever we speak on, on water, we're seen as a credible partner. After the US, the Netherlands is the second biggest exporter of food around the world, and that's both because we've got very precision agriculture, a lot of high-tech agriculture, which uh, sometimes is a solution, sometimes it has its own problems. And second, it's because we are a huge import and export hub globally for food items. We know it from the flowers, for soy and many other food items. We're a hub and therefore we play a global role. That's why we also understand not just about local production, how to adapt to climate and salinification of soils, for instance, also we have in the Netherlands, which is happening around the world, but also about supply chains. So we understand what's happening in Brazil or in Ghana or in Bangladesh or other parts of the world where we source from. And as also the whole food system concept is one that we, we live every day. And we share that knowledge and we want to learn how to adapt with the world towards a more sustainable system. With COP27 still to come at this point, what are the challenges and issues which need to be addressed in Egypt? And how can we listen to all the voices, listen more deeply, and act more compassionately towards those who are impacted most by climate change? There will be new alliances announced in Sharm el-Sheikh. I would say look out for the water one, because that's one that we find very important as the Netherlands. But the new one is going to be on, on food and climate. It's called Agriculture and Adaptation Day. Strangely enough, we had a food system summit in New York last year. But climate was underrepresented as a topic. And in Glasgow, food was underrepresented in the climate top. Well, you can imagine the sector most affected by climate would be agriculture. It's also the biggest employer around the world. It needs to be discussed. And the Egyptians have put it front and center as a thematic day in a climate top. So you'll see that being discussed centrally for the first time. In Egypt, it will be the climate top in Africa. It's the first climate top in recent years in Africa. 
And Africa has contributed less than 3% of the global emissions, but has a huge impact on climate. That's why adaptation is so important to them and discussion called loss and damages. If you can't adapt anymore, the countries that are really going to be affected uh, heavily by climate, how does that look like? What's the support these countries can expect of the global community? Finding a way how the least developing countries, so that is a clear category, like Fiji's, etc., around the world, to give them a real platform and give them real access to climate finance, because it needs to be more, but it also needs to be accessible. All that climate finance is already out there. Is it accessible for the least developing countries and the small island states? And how do we help those countries get a stronger political voice and more access to finance? The pain in the global south is very similar. In that sense, we need to listen to and give it space. But it's a very difficult discussion. The trust is not there. The geopolitics also plays a big role. And just pointing fingers doesn't help cooperation and collaboration. I see the willingness to cooperate and collaborate, at least in my climate circles, in all the northern countries is quite there. Is it enough? No, it needs more yes. Do we need to put more pressure on the global north? Yes, but it needs to be in such a way that we can find paths of collaboration and not just confrontation. As a diplomat, in my style of diplomacy, I steadfast belief in partnerships and belief that everybody has added value. You just need to find it. And I know that I've got my own limitations, so working in a diverse group uh, will help me at least <laughs> cover my grounds of where I'm not so strong to be able to add someone in the team that can. In that team spirit of team humanity, um, I think that we all can contribute. The challenge is, in the long run, everyone wants to work together. On the short run, people would try to cut corners, and there you see that commonality quickly erodes. So how to keep the attention on the long run is the biggest challenge that we have uh, to make it happen. How do we make it happen? How do we keep the attention on the long run and move beyond short-term thinking? When Prince Helmut talked about going through the valley of despair, he also talked about the light. When a climate diplomat like him is meeting with the leaders all around the world, which aspects give him hope? What helps him to overcome cultural divides and create new alliances? But if you meet people at the coffee corner, <laughs> they're just people. Then you realize that there, there might be some positioning and some misunderstanding. But specifically in these downtime moments, you can bridge. Um, I, I had, had one Middle Eastern country that struggles sometimes with the West. Actually, after we had coffee together, ask me into another work group on water and ask me on advice on a text that they were concerned about, but they didn't have the expertise in the room. Suddenly you see they're asking a Dutch diplomat for a Middle Eastern concern and asking for advice and to understand the text well and say, no, should we be concerned about this? And would you actually want to speak on our behalf? And I said, well, I do represent the Netherlands, but, but here's what you could potentially say. So you see that that's happening in these fora and the fact that these countries actually meet each other, get to know each other, um, actually also creates an opportunity to bridge when the time is right. So I'm, I'm not uh, overly pessimistic. It's not the end of the road. It's just another hurdle uh, to take. It really brings the whole person to a negotiation table. And there's the formal side and the coffee corner is the informal side. I have a creative background. I've studied in the US, international relations and economics, but I also did art school next to, <laughs> next to my studies. So I have a double major. And, and there I learned art is it's, it's problem solving and finding, creating solutions. So I constantly look at a problem and if the, the, the path towards uh, the solution is, is not there, then I look at another path with the same solution and I'll try two, three or four before discarding it and then finding a whole new route. 
it's constantly searching for the right path that, that helped me. So creativity is one. Uh, two, I think it's this link with nature, which my parents have brought me a lot in nature, that brings that connection of partnership with our whole environment. They're not to isolate ourselves from our environment. And I struggle with that sometimes because sometimes even I forget about this. So I need to constantly remind myself. And then I do walk in nature to kind of find the rest and, and the comfort again before me heading back to negotiation tables around the world. One might come to wonder, are these moments of light enough? Can we really build all necessary bridges across so many different perspectives and cultures? I've built from all that a steadfast belief in partnerships. I really believe we can do this. And we can really do that with very different cultures. I'm half Spanish, half Dutch, so it's a bridging culture is something that as a diplomat I've, I've been privileged to do. But I also really think in between a multi-sectoral, so uh, working with the private sector, understanding how the private sector ticks, how it works and what it needs to be able to make a shift, what the role of the government is versus the private sector, civil society, but also religious leaders. Sometimes we forget uh, the religious leaders. Prince Heim is our first guest to point out the role of religious leaders on climate action. Having served as ambassador to the Vatican, the Holy See, He witnessed the preparation and release of His Holiness Pope Francis's encyclical letter on climate change, titled Laudato Si, on care for our common home. So what is the role religious leaders might play in leading towards a just and sustainable future? I was ambassador to the Holy See. We've, we've worked a lot on climate, but I was very privileged a couple of weeks back when I went to Egypt to pre-discuss the climate summit that they're going to organize in November. I decided not just to visit the government, but also the Grand Imam. He welcomed me and his first reaction was, well, why are we discussing climate? You have to talk to governments and people in the private sector and there's bad people out there. So a bit of conspiracy theory there. I said, well, there's bad people out there, but there's a lot of good people also stuck in bad systems. And I'm one of them and you are one of them. So how do we deal with this? And governments and private sector alone are unable to really tackle the question enough right now, as the IPCC has calculated. Instead of 1.5 degrees Celsius, our, all our measures are going to reach the 3.2. So we need all of government uh, approach. Then I said in the Quran, there's 200 verses that deal about man and nature, or humanity and nature, and he said, that's true. And I said, uh, you shouldn't be sitting in the role of government and private sector, but you can sit in your role, which is framing the world along the lines of values. And, uh, and there's a lot of youth around the world uh, that listen to the Grand Imam, uh, one of the biggest scholars in the in Sunni religion. And then we had a long discussion about hope. He said, did you lose hope? Because I saw Alok Sharma, which is the minister in the UK, responsible for Glasgow for the climate summit, who had a tear at the end of negotiations. So he lost hope. I said, well, I think he had a moment of sorrow, but I wouldn't say there's loss of hope. And, and I said, you and I are people that cannot afford to lose hope. And so we left it at that. And when we left the meeting, he grabbed my arm. We always had an interpreter because he spoke Arabic and I don't. He grabbed my arm and said, it's a very inspiring discussion. And we said, let's not lose hope going forward. So even uh, big religious leaders are actually looking for confirmation and looking for ways how could they can contribute. And I was looking for inspiration talking to him as well. And then when I spoke to the government afterwards, it was uh, an atypical that a diplomat speaks to religious leaders prior to speaking to the government or to religious leaders as all. Well. So they really appreciate that as well. 
it's finding these these atypical partners to work with, which can be sometimes quite inspirational and hopefully in time impactful. While Western news tends to report on Western leaders, the voices of leaders from other parts of the world are typically underrepresented, in particular those from indigenous groups. What is it that we can learn from them? In the next couple of weeks, actually, there's a visit of the vice president of Bolivia, who comes to the Netherlands as a representative of indigenous leaders around the world. And I happened to have met him earlier in my work as a diplomat on natural resource. I visited uh, Bolivia to work on lithium together. The biggest part of his speech was about the philosophy of indigenous groups. And the fact that I took time to really listen to it uh, actually opened the doors uh, for greater cooperation between the Netherlands and Bolivia. And he's coming back now, so I made sure that I'm, I'm here when he comes to visit to listen and learn and be inspired more. We do see, if you look at nature, that indigenous groups uh, are the ones that right now in big parts of the world are the protectors of nature. Talking about nature as an equal partner, these can be the interlocutors in many places to make that happen. I'm going to re-listen to him and relearn to what he has to say. And you see that happening quite a lot. On the other hand, you've got a lot of uh, idealism uh, also on our side that can be both incredibly inspiring, but also very blinding. Because if that elite idealism is the only truth and all the other is not, then we're not listening to each other. So I do see that uh, that blinded idealism you see in the US very strong, sometimes in Europe as well, uh, and other parts of the world is there. There's also a very strong unconscious bias, a sort of paternalistic attitude that is not equal, that permeates in many discussions with the global south, and that is devastating. It's not really helping either. So we really need to learn to really listen and level and find commonality throughout the world. Something else that we might need to learn is how to deal with the fear that what we do might not be enough to stop the climate crisis. The fear that we eventually might not make it. So which advice is it that Prince Jaime can offer? I was sometimes in the middle of the night, at three o'clock at night, I was turning things over and I, I can dive into conflicts and I worked with refugees and you can step out. And but with climate, you can't step out of that environment because it's your direct environment that will affect you and everyone you know and future generations, your own children's environment. I started to really worry at night and really ponder things over. Then I spoke to a wise old man who's always worked on track to diplomacy and at least that helped me overcome my sense of despair at a certain point. He said, Jaime, you don't need to be the boxer trying to stop things and turn them around. A boxer redirects your energy 180 degrees and you should be more of an Aikido. Use that energy and just redirect it on maybe 10, 15 degrees and that creates new opportunities. That's more Aikido. It's not fighting against. It's going with the flow and shifting the course of things. And that gives you maybe less of a feeling of hopelessness and more of a sense of, uh, of, of having some influence on what's happening around you. To everybody listening, if you see this big problem, you see it as a big wall which, which is going to slam into you, just see it as an energy that you go with as a surfer. And how can you bend part of that energy to make something out of it? How can you just change a couple of things in your behavior that will have an effect over the long run? You affect the behavior of others that might uh, then take different decisions. Everybody has influence, whether it's your own family. 
I wasn't the, the one deciding to become vegetarian, but it was my wife. And so now we are eating no meat at home or hardly any meat. She has an influence on us. It, it was her choice and I went along with it. Just think of yourself and what roles you have in life. There's many roles and where climate fits into that, uh, whether it's in your family, whether it's you as a consumer, what you buy, you as a producer, if you are an entrepreneur, what you produce as an employee, what you ask of employers as conditions for the future. You see a lot of young people actually putting conditions to their companies on what they purchase and what sort of services they deliver. Your role as a, as a citizen in your community, your role as a voter, who you vote for. And you don't need to change per se parties, but you can also make sure that your own party becomes greener and just write letters to, to your constituencies and ask them to follow you on that leadership role. There's many places where you can play a role. And some have larger roles and others smaller, but, but all add to each other. And I see a, a big need and, and, and willingness of people to contribute. And more and more is possible because there's so many initiatives out there. Just link yourself to an initiative of an NGO or of a group of students or of whatever is out there and try to make it big. That's how you can make a difference. How can each of us make a difference? How do we stay sane and resilient in the face of so many challenges? How can we build bridges across conflicting positions and divides in our private and professional lives? And how do we find spaces like the aforementioned coffee corners where we are just people and can relate on a human level to each other? I hope Prinz Heimer could inspire you to find answers to these important questions. We thank him and his staff for taking time in the production of this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, you may also be interested in our episode from season two, titled, How Can We All Be Climate Diplomats? Where Inner Green Deal co-founder Jeroen Jans interviews previous Dutch climate envoy, Marcel Bökeboom. You can find the link to this episode in the show notes. consider sharing and subscribing or leaving a review. In doing so, you make it easier for people to discover our podcast. We thank you for your support and look forward to meeting you at one of our programs or our monthly community event. To find out more, visit innergreendeal.com or use the link in the show notes. <laughs>